When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is The Final Word. I'm Adam Collins. He is Jeff Lemon. I'm in a hotel room. You're in a hotel room. It's a big day for Australian cricket, which we're going to come to in a moment with uh, Daniel Bredig from ESPN Crick Info to document what has been a momentous day in many respects as far as the rights arrangements go between uh, Cricket Australia and their broadcast partners. We'll come to that in a sec, though, Jeff, mm. because as we touched on on Storytime on the weekend, but for those that don't listen to Storytime, uh, you are now a Queenslander! Queens. Lander, um, yes. I, as I said, I don't know if I, I will be allowed to claim that by other Queenslanders. Um, but, you know, they may say you're a resident, you're a border crosser, whatever. But, yes, I'm in Brisbane. <laughs> I'm in quarantine in Brisbane to to make sure I'm not still infectiously Victorian before being released into the community. But, yeah, here I am. I ran over a cane toad on the way from the airport to here. You know, just did a swervy. That's the, the badge of citizenship, I think. Going to listen to cattle and cane and, yeah, drive across the go-betweens bridge a lot. Got, got to be in Brisbane if you work in, in cricket now. So I've uh, permanent relocation is, is the phrase. It might not be for life, but it's for the foreseeable. Just to uh, give us some sense of what, what it means to be in hotel quarantine in Brisbane. So, obviously, you have to, to spend the majority of the time in your room, but can you get out to exercise or anything like that? Or is there, I mean, you know, I feel like I'm talking about prison conditions there. Is there an exercise hour or something? But what, what can you do and what have you been doing? There is there is literally an exercise hour. Um, you can call up and ask to be put on a list uh, to be taken outside. You, you get escorted by a police officer or member of the Defence Forces um, to there's like a, a plaza bit of this hotel where there's a swimming pool that you're not allowed to go in because you, you know, might infect everyone else who went in it. But there's a, you know, a sort of an area that's not huge, but you can have a wander around, you can get into a bit of daylight, you know, you maybe get half an hour or so and then you get taken back in but you cannot uh, you can ask to go out multiple times a day but you know i'm kind of a famous introvert amongst well not famous but amongst people who know me uh, I, I quite like keeping to myself and so just being in a room for a few days with someone 
dropping off a meal three times a day at the door and not having to talk to anyone <laughs> except on the internet. Like, it's pretty good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hating it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously the bubble that I've been in is not quite as strict as that, although it, 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 it's fairly uh, strict and I'm going to find it interesting uh, going back home uh, I guess tomorrow after the third and final one day international. So we will talk about those one days here at Manchester in the second half of the show. The series is tied at one apiece heading into the decider on Wednesday. But we did say, Jeff, to begin that it's been a big day in Australian cricket and you've caught up with Daniel Bredig to, to go through it all. But before we go to Dan, just try and put it in some perspective given you were writing about this over the weekend. Yeah, basically... Mo money, mo problems. Uh, Cricket Australia signed a big rights deal a couple of years ago trying to max out how much cash they could get and now their TV partners, <laughs> um, their, their relationship's not going very well, those partners. Channel 7 and Fox Sports are both trying to uh, pay a lot less money than they agreed to pay a couple of years ago. That's the, the basics of it. But there are a whole lot of implications. You know, this could, look, it could be resolved, but it could, start to get really ugly and Channel 7 as an organisation are in some strife uh, amongst themselves. So there's there, there are huge ramifications potentially for cricket in Australia in terms of its viability, you know, whether, whether they will actually run out of cash, whether the Kevin Roberts doom scenario of running out of money could actually happen. So that's all contingent on what happened today. So uh, let's cross to Dan Bredig and find out a bit more about that. This is The Final Word, and joining us on the show once again for the umpteenth time, ESPN Crick Info's Daniel Bredig. First of all, thanks for being with us today, Dan. No worries at all. It's, um, uh, you know, cr- cricket seems to have enough enough issues. Well, it's had enough issues to, to keep me busy even through a year of, of COVID, which is uh, some achievement, I reckon. <laughs> um, today, we're recording this on Tuesday, the 15th of September. On this day... Cricket Australia were supposed to get 50 million Australian dollars in their bank account from their broadcast partners, Seven West Media and Fox Sports. This is the money that Kevin Roberts was so worried about not getting back in April that he uh, stood down most of their staff and made enemies out of everybody in cricket by going on to an emergency footing with the funding. This money, there there have been threats over this being withheld. So first of all, what actually happened today? What cash made it to the accounts of Cricket Australia and what didn't and why? We don't know the exact amounts, but we know that seven paid less than what they were due to pay, which was $25 So probably some, I would guess, somewhere between 15 and and 20 uh, went into Cricket Australia's accounts. Foxtel paid less than the $33 million that they were due to pay. Now, my understanding is that that wasn't... Uh, it, the, the paying of less money than required was not necessarily by the same means, as in Seven are seeking a dispute resolution with an independent arbiter on the value of the rights. Because Fox have already lost some content over the course of the year, if you think about the New Zealand one-day games that didn't get played that Zimbabwe mm-hmm. series in the top end that didn't get played and the couple of West Indies T20 matches that were going to be played in the lead-up to the T20 World Cup that was moved. That means that they have had a material loss in content and that is mm-hmm. uh, included in the mechanisms of their contract with Cricket Australia that if content is not played, then there is a discount. But right. the bottom line is that both contractors, broadcast rights holders, have paid less than they were originally contracted to pay to Cricket Australia and that is... 
you know, whatever the tactics, whatever the, the narrative that's being built up around this, that's a hugely significant moment because uh, you would have to go back a long way probably to the dawn of broadcast rights agreements in Australian cricket for, for that to have taken place. So the Fox reduction, as you said, makes sense on a pro rata basis that they can say, you know, we've, we haven't got games that we were su- supposed to have had and therefore there's, there's this mechanism built in. The, the seven one is, that's a tactical reduction. That's them withholding money that they're supposed to have paid. You know, it seems like a pretty dicey legal position to be putting themselves in to be withholding something that's already been agreed. Cricket Australia have been pretty consistent the whole way through. They think the contract is pretty cut and dried. It's only if you're losing content that any of that sort of mechanism will be enacted. And equally that if that hasn't happened, and it hasn't happened yet in terms of what they have scheduled, Seven don't have the rights to any of the white ball cricket that Fox do. They have the rights to a large portion of the Big Bash League and all test cricket. And obviously neither of those things have changed as of this moment. Therefore, Seven need to present some other reason or attempt to present some other reason why they shouldn't pay full freight. And they've presented sort of a... It's been a bit of a moving feast of different reasons, uh, trying to see which ones will stick in terms of, well, you're going to have to cancel content anyway... Uh, the content that you're going to produce is not going to be of, of sufficient quality. You have changed the schedule because the BCCI wanted to play white ball cricket off the back of the IPL before the Test Series, which means that we don't get international cricket out on seven before those white ball games, which are exclusive to Fox. These are all the, mm-hmm. the various reasons that have been put up by seven. And now, because they have pointed to a clause in the contract about dispute resolution and being able to seek an independent arbiter as to the value of of the rights that's where we have been left at now probably the most provocative thing about today is seven's indication that this increment a reduction on the 25 million they were due to pay will be the only increment that they pay this summer or at least until the dispute is resolved now if that were to come to pass that would obviously have a huge impact on the cash flow situation of Australian cricket over a summer in which, obviously, there's a lot of uh, matches to put on, a lot of players to be paid and a lot of staff to be paid. And a lot of expenditure over and above the usual in terms of making grounds COVID compliant, uh, having reduced crowds or no crowds potentially at some matches and the extra costs of biosecurity, that's going to be pretty significant when you look at you know the amount of staff that they'll have to have on at grounds to to police restrictions and distancing and and all the rest of it you know it's potentially a very expensive summer that they'll be putting on yes and not only that but there are certain areas in which cricket australia have conceded to both seven and fox that they needed to be spending and investing more particularly in terms of putting up money outside the salary cap for overseas players for the Big Bash League. So there has been... That's probably been the only concession in terms of Cricket Australia dealing with the broadcasters in in recent months, that because the Big Bash via the contract is worth a lot more now than it was, we need to more closely match up what we're investing on the quality of players, particularly when there has been competition from other T20 leagues to... uh, to get players to Bangladesh, to get them to South Africa, 
or even in terms of Australian players, the obviously the, the competing schedule um, issues of playing international cricket and the Big Bash at the same time. So that in itself is a huge issue for CA in terms of managing this. But equally, these sorts of measures are very quickly going to have flow-on effects for the broadcasters themselves. One thing that I'm expecting to happen, if it hasn't happened already, is all of their advertisers, who they are currently in talks with to put ads on during the cricket, are going to say, well, you're seeking a discount of your rights from Cricket Australia. Where's our discount for our advertising rates with you? So one of the things that really needs to be understood, I guess, about... I suppose it's the... It's not a run on the on the bank, but it, it is an issue that creates a sort of a cascading loss of confidence. And um, you, can, right. you can probably sheet that back, as you did um, off the top, to Cricket Australia talking about not being able to guarantee this money earlier in the year because it's, you know, it, it, it works like an economy does work in terms of there needing to be confidence in the ability to not to provide credit in this case, but to provide liquidity to run the game. So if I can see if I can summarise for the listeners what's gone on with Seven and, and you can tell me how close I am on this summary, that essentially you've got a broadcaster that's got a huge amount of debt and that's got large uh, large deals that where it's supposed to pay a lot of money for sporting rights earlier in the year because the AFL season was reduced they managed to get about 90 million dollars knocked off their what they owed for the the AFL which was quite helpful for seven they had cricket australia talking about the possibility of losing matches and so there was that prospect for seven that they might actually not have to pay as much as they thought, which was quite appealing to them. Then CA have said, we're going to get the whole schedule on, so you will have to pay the full amount. Uh, and Seven, it seems to me, have decided they're not very keen to do that, and so they've started casting around for other ways to avoid that. And so that first reason, as you mentioned, was saying that the Big Bash wouldn't be high quality because it wouldn't have Australian players in it, you know, as in national team players. It's never had those players in it over the course of its existence. They've always been playing somewhere else. So that's patently non but then they've cast around for another few reasons in terms of the tests being the first international cricket they'll screen and all the rest of it. But basically it seems like you've got a broadcaster that's short of cash and is looking for whatever way they can to uh, limit their outgoings and save themselves a buck. Yep, that's a fair summary. Uh, and, and probably something that I would add to that is that even after only one year of their contract, so this is before COVID, Seven was already writing down the value of their broadcast deal and sort of placing it in its onerous contracts column in terms of basically saying, you know, this is one of the mistakes we've made as an organisation to get ourselves into more debt, which is quite an extraordinary uh, move to make, you know, only a year, if that, after you've signed this $450 million deal with cricket. Mm. It really doesn't say much for the leadership of Seven and the leadership of Seven that, you know, this can't can't be just sheeted home to Tim Warner, who was the CEO of Seven at the time that the deal was struck. Tim Warner was dealing literally in the same room with Kerry Stokes and his son Ryan Stokes. So it's not as though this was a decision that can be waved away as being sort of on the the rap sheet of the Mm. former CEO. So in terms of accountability... And in terms of the agreement that was struck in 2018, this is certainly a watershed in terms of a broadcaster trying to 
essentially trying to run away from a cricket deal. Right. And when you've got Seven then saying that they're not going to pay, they've got, what, three more payments to you this year and that they're not going to pay those until the arbitration is done. Is that, I mean, that looks pretty much like a hostage situation of them saying, well, you're going to be in real trouble as an organisation because you won't have the liquidity you need unless you agree to terms with us that we're prepared to agree to. I mean, it looks very much like, you know, holding a large heavy object over somebody's head at that point. Well, it tracks, it, it probably tracks very quickly to a legal process. There's not really any other way to, to look at it. One of the, the stories, or one of the great stories in terms of the, the history of cricket and broadcasting in Australia uh, and really underlines, I think, to me, the um, it's not really a shift in the balance of power because the power hasn't been tested yet by, like I say, by the legal process, mm. by a few other things. In 1993, when the ACB was trying to get out of its long-term deal with Nine and PBL, so basically the, you know, the umbrella organisation of, of Kerry Packer, they fronted Packer in Sydney and said, you owe us some money. There is some contracted money that you haven't paid us as an organisation. Mm. Packer's response to that was, gentlemen, just uh, stay there. I'll, I'll be back shortly. He disappeared for 10 minutes, half an hour. The versions of the, of the story uh, differ a little bit. And then he returned... He sat down with, uh, it was Alan Crompton, the then chairman of the ACB, and Graham Halbish, the then CEO. He discussed, okay, the, the, I think they'd given him an invoice, and he said, don't worry about that, we will, we'll pay it. And by the way, I've just sacked Linton Taylor, who was essentially the executive in charge of dealing directly with the ACB. So Packer summarily fired someone who'd been with him since World Series cricket upon finding out that he wasn't paying all that he was contracted to pay to cricket. That's a right. long, long way from where we are now. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. So what recourse, if any, does Cricket Australia have to these sort of tactics And if, if this is the situation that they're in? Well, it's a simple case of if, it is, uh, if it's alleged that they're in breach of contract, this goes to court, goes to probably the Victorian Supreme Court and... The arguments. I mean, one of the things, obviously, about a, a about a court case is that there's there's a lot of ugly muck thrown in both directions. But in terms of, it will really come down to you know what's what's the material definition of a of a change in the content that's being provided under the under mm -hmm. the contract, and in terms of the history of contract broadcast contracts for cricket, there's not really a previous instance of this happening over an argument right. around quality, which is the thing that has been bandied about quite consistently over the last couple of months. And it's not really quantifiable, is it? it you, you, can, you can talk about a number of games, but you can't really rate the marketability of the players in the No, game. well, I mean, one of, the, one of the arguments about the Big Bash lacking players of sufficient quality and not having enough international players, I mean, obviously that has been the case throughout the Big Bash's history. There's been a great deal of variation in terms of the Australian Cricket Australia contracted players have been available to play in it. International players have been available to play in it. And that's a situation that's evolving every day because we're living in, in a COVID environment where, where things are variable. I mean, one thing that is certain 
is that the Big Bash is far more likely to go ahead and be able to accommodate international overseas players than just about any other T20 league in the world, short of the IPL in the UAE. So that will obviously mean that there will be gaps in overseas players' schedules that was that were not necessarily there prior. So that's one of the variables. And another one is that in terms of international cricket, you know, you talk about quality. So Seven and Fox were happy to pay the asking rate of Cricket Australia for a deal starting in the 2018-19 season when Steve Smith and Dave Warner were banned from playing cricket against India. Undoubtedly, mm. that reduced the quality of that series. They're now back. They're now going to be able and available to play, and India are returning. Mm. I would think that if you follow the quality argument, that's a better quality series than you, than you had a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, very interesting in, on that basis. So then what happens, you know, if, if it becomes a legal fight, if they go to court, what happens in terms of cricket getting on television in the summer to come? I mean, does CA let Seven broadcast? Does Seven still want to broadcast it? Um, you know, is there a, is there a sort of uh, playing chicken point about who's, who's going to get panicked first about Seven not having something to screen or CA not having a, a television broadcaster on free-to-air? You know, how does it work if they're, if they're brawling? How do they put on a summer of cricket? Well, the thing that has been made clear already and, you know, the assurance has been, has been made, at least partly because it's obviously in the broadcaster's interest to maintain a, I suppose you'd say, an, an image of, of some integrity to their audience who know that they are contracted to provide cricket coverage is that Fox and Seven will broadcast the cricket this summer. Now, what will be interesting to see in the context of the dispute is what happens within that, the, the micro within that macro, whereby how many resources does Seven put into their coverage when they are assuming that they're not going to be doing it after this season, for instance, or what it, what is the level of communication and cooperation going to be like between the Australian team, its players who know that their pay packets are potentially being affected by this dispute and the broadcasters who provide mm. the money that pays them. Those are the sorts of things that are going to be of definite interest over the course of this season. And then lastly, when you link this back to what happened in, in 2018 when the deal was signed, you there were a number of different deals and, and proposals put to CA. There was a joint bid by Channel 9 and 10 initially that was rejected. There was a bid from Channel 10 backed by CBS on its own of nearly close to a billion dollars on its own just to have all of cricket on 10. And then when that was turned down so that Fox would have some of the cricket exclusively on pay TV, there was also a bid from 10 to get the free-to-air portion of that. In the end, it was worth a pretty fractional amount less than what Seven offered, you know, only a handful of millions of dollars really overall. But in the end, Cricket Australia, led by James Sutherland at the time with Ben Amafio as the executive in charge of those negotiations, went to Seven instead. So they left two broadcasters they'd worked with before and went to two broadcasters they hadn't. How does that look now? How does that deal look now when... We saw the success that 10 had screening the Big Bash for a number of years. There was obviously the long history with nine. The fact that they went for a little bit more money and now it looks like they might end up getting a lot less than they would have done if they'd gone with with one of those other deals. So, you know, where does that sit in terms of legacy decisions and the impact that it's having a couple of years down the line? 
Well, I can be more precise in terms of the amount. It was $2 million extra a season that Seven paid as opposed to 10. And 10 didn't get a mm. final opportunity to match or improve on that $82 million. So it doesn't sound like a lot. So $12 million in total over yes. the journey of a six-year yes. deal. It's not a lot of money relative to the, to the total. And it was also the starting of a new relationship with a network that was already in debt as opposed to a network that you already had a relationship with, uh, that is, Cricket Australia already had a relationship with, and that had recently been purchased by CBS, which meant that essentially its budgets were a drop in a massive multinational bucket. So that is one element that I think doesn't sit well on the, on the, on the legacies of, of the executives, the negotiators involved. Equally, it doesn't sit well with the Cricket Australia board whose driving kind of modus operandi there was instructing their negotiating team to hit a number. That was something that I don't think everyone felt completely comfortable with even at the time. Certainly 10 were very unhappy immediately. Nine were not that happy either in terms of the way that you know, their attempted joint bid with 10 had been um, rejected out of hand when clearly Seven and Fox were, were were very much talking closely together throughout about how to find a way to make it, make it work. And the other thing, of course, is that Cricket Australia was successfully able to sell to Seven and Fox the idea that the sort of special event sport ratings that they enjoy and crave and were actually literally experiencing during the negotiation because the 2018 Commonwealth Games were on, on the Gold Coast... And, you know, the idea that, oh, you know, a sporting event that can get two million viewers every night for a period of weeks, you know, that's, that's gold in the, in, the, in the fragmented broadcast market we're now in. Yeah, Cricket Australia was successfully able to sell the idea that a 61-game Big Bash League would do the same thing as that Commonwealth Games was doing, more or less. Hmm. And, and they did that even though the previous two seasons of the Big Bash which was at that stage at a 43-game length where every team played 10 games, it had, not by a huge margin, but a small margin, had trended down a little bit for two years off a peak that they'd reached in 2016. Mm. So whatever it was, whether it was the bright lights and the warm temperatures of the Gold Coast, whether it was the fever of competition among the networks, whether it was the fact that because of the Newland scandal that had just taken place, cricket was all over the newspapers, so everyone was being you know, reminded of how much Australians cared about cricket. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a bit of a, of a cocktail that managed to help Cricket Australia's negotiating team hit the number their board wanted, but I think it also created a, I suppose you'd say, a, a, a bubble in terms of what the actual reality of Australian cricket and mm-hmm. having an Australian cricket broadcast rights deal means. It's not special event broadcasting for two weeks. It's the constant drumming rhythm of a summer that gives you a reliably high level of viewership, but it's no, not the same thing, like I say, as a, as a special event. Mm. Yeah, it's not. It's not an Australian Open final or a, or a hundred metres and. 
And uh, you can also find that it's a lot easier to win medals at the Commonwealth Games than at the Olympics. So maybe in 2018 they were at the Com Games and this year they're at the Olympics. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on it. Uh, Daniel Bredig, thank you for joining us once again on The Final Word. No worries. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's a final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks to Dan for always being such a, a good and readily available guest on these matters. He has an incredible, uh, having listened back to the chat you had with him earlier, an incredible capacity to uh, put things into the historical context as well, going back to that meeting with Packer in 1993 and, mm. and so on, so that we can really understand what today meant. It is remarkable. Like, who knows that stuff? Well, there's one. There's one guy who knows that stuff, and it's him. And and and, and you just heard from him. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it was a pretty frank conversation as well. You know, the mm. the potential way that this could disrupt a huge amount of the you know all of the programs that Cricket Australia have going. Um, the you know even just being able to stage the games. You know the the. The efforts they were going to earlier in the year to make sure they had credit available to draw on from the Commonwealth Bank, I think it was in case they needed it. Well, they might be in a position where, where they come to need it if, uh, if, if this goes all the way and becomes a, a properly ugly legal brawl. Yeah, and we've seen uh, in England today the ECB have announced uh, formally that 62 jobs will go, uh, 20% of the organisation needs to be cut essentially. So Tom Harrison, the chief executive, uh, put that statement out this morning. And as we've seen over here, it's pretty expensive to put on uh, games of cricket when you have to go through the biosecure process, whether that's flying teams out or you know putting them in quarantine and uh, all the support required around the hotels and so on. And that's presumably what CA will be up against this year. But over here, the rubber has hit the road now. So the £100 million they'd already almost budgeted on losing, they expect that could swell to £200 million if there's not a resolution by the next cricket season over here. It's pretty grim. I mean, we knew this. There were stories about the redundancies doing the rounds a couple of weeks ago, but to have it confirmed in such stark terms today, it's a reminder that, yes, coronavirus, look, there might be a vaccine, there may not, who, who really knows, but the enduring effects of uh, this period of time will be felt for a well, a long period of time. I think we were, well, some of us, I think, you know, I, I was one of them, allowed ourselves to be a bit fickle about this in that because the cricket was on in England and because it was going well, you know, we've had some, you know, there have been some mm. rain-offs, but there have been some really good contests across the Test matches, one day as the T20s. There, there's been a lot of compelling on-field action. It was easy to forget that, things are in a really bad way you know it was it was easy to get carried away with okay everything's all right now the cricket's on it's all fine it's not fine and it is I mean obviously these things are being replicated on much bigger scales of national scales and across the scales of industries and regions and this is just a little particular bit of it that we're concerned with but within cricket there was there was such optimism in so many areas, you know, over the last couple of years, in that th things were going really well for the most part in in Australia and England. You know, obviously there are the struggles in associate countries that don't get any funding, and, and that's been one of the big failings of the game more broadly. Uh, but if we're looking at it in the context of the countries that we live and work in most of the time, things were positive. There were so many good programs up and running, uh, and I know that CA have done their best to try to preserve at least some of those, you know, protect some of those in the cost cutting. And, and I'm not sure where the ECB's job cuts are going to come from, but it's just really sad to suddenly go from that 
feeling of optimism, you know, in, in March when we had that huge crowd in at the Women's T20 World Cup to now where it's like, you know, everything's everything could be on the back burner for a really long time. Yeah, it's a reminder that simply having the games played isn't enough. I mean, of course, that's a precondition for these organisations not going broke, by the way. Those broadcast deals which you were talking to Dan about before, you know, we know what this is worth to CA this summer. We know what it was worth to the ECB getting their program of content, as they call it, on. For the most part, I mean, there won't be as much women's cricket. There'll be five T20s at the back of the summer, which... Uh, start next week but from a men's perspective where most of the money has been generated in that broadcast arrangement we've had six test matches we've had this week the three one days we've had six t20 internationals i mean it's been a pretty good outcome but yeah as i mentioned before it's it's the cost of doing business it's the lack of ticket sales it's the all the additional costs along the way which have really started start started to bite and this announcement today is the uh, realization of all of that so it's a, 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 a somber day really when the finances of the game are in such a parlous state that we now have to think about the game contracting when as you pointed out before Jeff it seemed to be expanding in all the right areas whether it's uh, women's cricket whether it was pathways cricket uh, the all-stars cricket program over here which has been a revelation over the last few years now presumably all of those growth areas will be quarantined so to speak or ring fenced uh, when they're making these cuts but still it's, it's, uh, it, it's hard to sort of spin it any other way than what we've had revealed to us today well nothing's going to be immune you know even if things are mostly maintained that there will still be um, cuts in those areas I'm sure and there'll be there'll be the trickle-down effect from cuts in other areas and I think it's a conversation that has been had a fair bit over the last few years that broadcast rights in general have been inflated beyond you know what they can reasonably be worth it's it's so valuable for TV networks to have live sport because it's one of the few things that can't be screened at other times. You know, you can't you mm. can't binge it on your own time. It, it's it's one of the few things that still happens in real time. I guess is live news and, and live sport. So there was that concern already, and you know what we're seeing now with money disappearing out of the game it might be said to be that realism coming to bite. But it, it's also the fact that when you're getting into recession territory, there's so much less money being spent everywhere so there are fewer people advertising there's less advertising money that those broadcasters can make which means that they're less able to afford to to run the sports that they run and so you know nobody can can win out of it you know it's it's something that you just got to bite the leather and suffer through yeah, and, and that idea that rights have been overvalued, I mean, this was a discussion we had with Ben Horn a couple of weeks ago, really, but the the uh, the bidding war that took place in 2018, which led towards the situation where seven who are suffering from financial pressures elsewhere in the business uh, have got this huge gorilla for an expense, I mean, $25 million a quarter, is it? I think they have to pay um, across the across the stretch of their arrangement, which um, extends for four more years. I mean, suddenly, it, it feels like maybe the that pissing contest wasn't necessarily justified. But in saying that, I mean, they're not the only ones who participated in that. But um, nine, perhaps astutely and savvily, backed away, uh, and it was up to, obviously, ten Seven and Fox, who were the last three standing, and I mean, you wrote extensively, Jeff, at the time about what happened uh, on that final afternoon. But I wonder whether this will change the the climate in which these will, these these TV rights will be bid for in the future. Whether there's a different way of doing business, which means that we don't end up in a situation where networks get the game but don't necessarily want to actually then put it on. It was interesting that Channel Nine's bid was nowhere near what the others were talking mm. about, and as you say, in retrospect, maybe that was. 
much more realistic. You know, it was still a lot of money. You're still in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but it it was, you know, not much more than half what was being talked about by the other bidders. So perhaps over the next couple of years, that will be, we will see things settling back to something more realistic in, in those sort of deals. Uh, Jeff, I think that's just about enough of the grim stuff, isn't it? We've, we've invested a lot of time off the front of the show today uh, dealing with the realities of the game off the field. But why don't we take a breather, just recover from that, and mm-hmm. afterwards we'll do some fun stuff. Nerd Pledge, and we'll talk about the cricket that's actually oh. on the field this week. Wisden Cricket Monthly. It's reliable because it comes out 12 times a year. It spaces that out over the 12 calendar months of the modern calendar that we use quite a regular basis as well. The The upcoming issue will be October-ish, but it's going to be coming out in September for October, if that makes sense. But you know there are 12 of them in a year. And this one's a particularly thematic issue because it's all about all-rounders, the players that we love because they can do it all. They're never bludging at long leg. They bat. They bowl, they catch, they select a great playlist for the bus. All-rounders, Adam, that is what we're talking about this month. What sort of calendar is it? I know uh, there's the Julian calendar. There's, there's the Brendan the, Julian calendar. The Brendan Julian is, is it the Gregorian calendar? I reckon it the is. Tatiana, the Tatiana Gregoriavian yeah, calendar. Of course, a, it was 20 years this week since she won silver at the Olympics in the pole vault. They oh, should yes. have named a calendar after her. What a day. What a what a day that it was! Was the same night. The, it was the, the same night that Kathy won the four hundred. Did you watch the Kathy documentary on on ABC the other night? No, but I did watch her winning the stall gift with a handicap of fifty four meters in the four hundred. Incredible, which was incredible. One of the best things I've ever seen. Um, watch the Freeman. Watch you should watch the Freeman doco. I watched. Mm. I, I routed in via a VPN to watch it yesterday, okay. and I pretty much just sobbed for an hour. Yeah. Um, for it, for it, it, it meant so much. Her career meant so much to me as a teenager, and seeing her talk about anyway, I don't know why we're talking about Kathy Freeman when, well, we when there's a new magazine coming. Why out. not? Why not talk about it? Did Jumping Jai Torima win on Gregorieva night, or was that no? He was later in the week in the mm. long jump. I got to know Jumping Jai quite well. I think I've told you about this in the past that he was the AFP police officer on the front door of the PM's office when I was working up in Canberra. So um, Jumping Jai and I would often have a chat. Go outside and uh, hang out and uh, <laughs> uh, oh, does it really matter that I smoked a lot back then? Go out and have a fag together is what we used to do um, uh, when, we were, when we were younger and sillier. But lovely man. And you wouldn't have known he was jumping Jai Trima unless you knew he was jumping Jai Trima. You know mm. what I mean? He didn't advertise the fact that he was the Olympic silver He didn't wear his too. silver medal to work. No, no, he didn't. Funnily enough, it was, wasn't in keeping with the AFP's dress code at the time. But <laughs> great lad. Uh, yeah, but I don't know what calendar it applies to, what we, that we use uh, when we're thinking about Wisdom Cricket Monthly, but what mm. I do know is it's an all-round great publication hey. and it's the all-rounders edition, oh, all-rounder special. Me. We've had lots of specials in Wisdom Cricket Monthly over the last few years since it was rebooted, um, but we've got Ian Botham on the front. Nice picture of Botham. Joe Harmon has an exclusive interview with the great England all-rounder from the 70s and 80s and I suppose 90s as well if you want to count the Snuck 1992 in. World Cup. He just gets over the line. He didn't play a lot of test cricket after then, but, you know, he was still a white ball player. He played in 91. He, he played in Viv Richards' last game. And, uh, no, he did. He did. The, the leg over incident, of course, was in was in 1991. Imran Khan, I think on the front of the magazine, it, it describes him as a playboy and the Prime Minister, which I thought was quite funny. Mm-hmm. Enid Bakewell is featured. She's what a remarkable woman. She talks about, among other things, how she was still playing international cricket at six months pregnant, which is kind of remarkable. What a woman. Ben Stokes, Gary Sobers, 
Jux Callis, Darren Stevens. Darren Stevens. Do you know much about Darren Stevens, Jeff? You would have watched him play at Kent before. Only in as much as you have talked about Darren Stevens a lot and pretty much anyone who works in cricket in England has a fondness for Darren Stevens for Steve-O when because what is he about 43 or something and yeah he just signed a new deal at age 44 he didn't bowl really until he was about 36 and he's some chance and he wants to play till he's 50 but he's some chance of taking a thousand first class wickets his numbers are just extraordinary and yeah he was going to be culled by Kent last year went on to make the fastest 250 for the club at Yorkshire I think it was like 250 and about 200 balls. Uh, so he was, you know, he was a batsman um, mm. first and foremost before becoming an all-rounder and, and here he is all these years later. So there's a, a piece about his incredible longevity and they analyse which all-rounders are statistically the greatest to have ever graced test cricket. Piece with Tim Bresden on his glory days with England and Yorkshire and his forays into plumbing, I see here. I haven't read that piece yet, but I wonder how they've shoehorned that in. Looking forward to it. Ian Bishop, a profile on his career as a player and also as a fine broadcaster. Looking at women's cricket in the forthcoming T20 International Series with the West Indies with Sarah Glenn and Matty Villiers, two promising young players interviewed for that. Phil Walker, the editor-in-chief of the magazine, uh, looks at uh, the tension in England coaching at the moment, which I'm sure will be an important read too. Always good to see... More poets getting into cricket magazines. Tim Key writes about the greatest series of them all for him personally in My Golden Summer, which is a really fun series that they run in the magazine about people picking a series that might not necessarily be the best ever uh, in pure cricket terms, but the one that's best to them. Suresh Menon, who edits the Western India Almanac, considers the legacy of M.S. Dhoni, who pulled the pin recently on his international career. David Lloyd selects his team of Lancashire legends. That will be a very niche interest up around Manchester way. It's great having uh, Bumble with us in the bubble here, actually. He gave us a bottle of his homemade gin last night, just oh, came to the table and dropped it on the table and said, you guys can finish that off. So he's, he, he runs the show. Is it any good? This is uh, very much his patch. Uh, well, look, we, we poured it into our existing gins really in the end, so I don't know if we can distinguish between the two. I haven't got that mature enough palate, but um, <laughs> it was very kind of him, and he's a lovely bloke. There's always... the the columnist in, in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Andrew Miller, who works at Crick Info day by day. But once a month, you can read him in Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Monthly. He revels in the mastery of James Anderson rather than fixating on what comes next, which is a good idea because James Anderson is very good at cricket. Uh, Elizabeth Ammon gives her appraisal of Colin Graves' as tenure as ECB chairman. And Zaffa Ansari argues that English cricket risks alienating Joffre Archer by obsessing about his pace. So there's tons and tons of brilliant cricket writing yet again in Wisdom Cricket Monthly for it is the best cricket magazine in the world, Jeff. And if you want to get involved and pick up a subscription, it's very, very easy thanks to being a subscriber to The Final Word. It comes once a month and you can have it sent to you once a month to read all of it and you can do that with a healthy discount. Uh, You go to a little link that will be in the show notes for this episode. You click on it and then... You get your editions. You don't even have to enter a code, I don't think, for this one. It's it's very, very straightforward. So hit the link in the show notes and it will get you a six-month subscription for just under 10 quid, which in anyone's money is very, very economical. Yes, that's right. Bit.ly forward slash WCM final. It could not be any easier than that. The link is in the show notes, as you mentioned before, Jeff. Six editions for 10 quid, really. It's fantastic value for money for some of the best cricket writing you're ever going to come across. Wisdom Cricket Monthly on shelves now. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
It's the final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon coming to you from the bubble, in my case, and a quarantine hotel in Jeff's, and that means we've had plenty of time to do some research for... Nerd Pledge! The game of nerds! The game of pledges. The game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that equates to a cricketing number, and we have to work out what that number is. The first on our list today comes through from David Brooks. No argument, David Brooks, no argument. That's what I would call him if I knew him. Uh, That's what I will call him if I meet him, David Brooks. Be warned, you're on notice. David Brooks sent through a number. The number was $1.07, 107, and David Brooks also sent through a clue in the patron DMs, which is something that you can do if you want to make sure we get closer to your intended number rather than just riffing gloriously on 107. David says this was a first-class score in Adelaide. That clue is what I placed in front of Adam Collins, like a trail of crumbs leading back to his home at the Woodcutter's from the forest and I'd like to know whether you got back or whether you were in fact abducted by a witch in a gingerbread house to fatten you up and feast on you. Nicely set up very nicely set up and thank you David Brooks for giving me the chance to take a look at a Sheffield Shield game from 1929 at Adelaide (laughs) which is the hook a fabulous game of cricket. So New South Wales with Jackson and Bradman and Kippax and Fairfax and Oldfield I mean, it's a pretty good team. Mm-hmm. They, they're playing against the Sackers, and they make 402 in the first innings, and Archie Jackson, when he's on that remarkable streak of scores before uh, going to England uh, in 1930, uh, he makes 162 to start the first-class game, start the Shield game. Not a bad effort. But Alan Kippax, who's the captain of that New South Wales side, this is the link to 107. That's the score he makes the first time around. In reply, South Australia make 304, then... In New South Wales, the second innings, they make 313. Jackson again making 90, so ever so close to to twin tons. Interesting, Bradman went to the top of the order in the second innings and Mm. only made two after failing in the first innings as well. So only seven runs collectively across the game for Bradman. Anyway, they still were able to set um, South Australia 412 to win and they got 351 of them. They did really well in that that final innings, uh, but not quite well enough. Clary Grimmett uh, picked up three wickets in the second innings yes. and three wickets in Get the first. So he's consistent as always for you, Jeff. I thought you'd like that playing. Six per match. Six per match. I think he's 5.92 in test cricket um, per match. Yeah, yeah. So I think. from that stage of his career, he was certainly uh, consistent. We know that from his test records. But South Australia lost to New South Wales by 60 runs. And um, why I thought this was after, obviously, that, that's a pretty good game of cricket. The scores are 402, 304, 313, and 351. And you've got, as I mentioned, some of the all time greats of Australian cricket uh, turning out in the second week of January 1929. But I mentioned the margin was 60 runs in mm. favour of New South Wales. Well, two months later, when they had their return fixture at the SCG, when New South Wales needed to win against South Australia to secure themselves the Sheffield Shield. They did, and they won by 60 runs the Uh, second time around as well. uh, So both times the teams played in 1929, or 1928-29 rather, it was with the the same margin, which I thought was quite nice and quite nerd-pledgy. So maybe this all comes via the Kipax 107. Maybe it's something else altogether, but I enjoyed looking at that scorecard. So thank you very much, David Brooks, for giving me that opportunity. You like symmetry, and I like 
Clary Grimmett, and those two things came together very nicely. So I, I'm willing to accept that answer. David Brooks, you can let us know if Adam was close. I, I like to think that, you know, you, if somebody came up to you and said, I'll give you a dollar to look up a scorecard from a Sheffield Shield match in 1929, you'd do it. You'd take that deal. So I would every single time. Yeah. So last, last that's weekend... That's what you just want to do. If you just want to give us a dollar a time to look at the Sheffield... If that's, <laughs> if that's how you want to frame up, we're in fully. Um, on the weekend, last weekend on Storytime, we, on Storytime 15, I think it was, we discussed a Sheffield Shield game between South Australia and New South Wales from 1927. Uh, and a few days later, we're discussing one from 1929. So look forward to our 1931 edition on this next show. You can't accuse us. You can't accuse us of being inaccessible and niche on the final word. No, not at all. Thank you, David. Travis Clark <laughs> has sent through $1.45. Uh, now, what might one forty-five mean in cricketing terms, Adam? Well, I just had a, a, a big Victorian spaff on this one. Uh, I mean, one forty-five growing up, to me, one of my first cricket memories really is being at my uncle's place on a Sunday afternoon as Dean Jones belted one forty-five against England at the Gabba. At the time, it felt like it was the most aggressive innings ever played. He, but looking back at the scorecard before, he only he, he still faced 136 balls, but it was the four massive sixes he hit onto the dog track. And I remember the end of that game. It became a bit of a custom when Alan Border was captain of the one-day team. When they were well ahead in the game, having batted first, he would throw the ball to whoever made runs with the bat. So Dino bowled the, the 50th over of the of the England innings on on that occasion. He did a few times. I think David Boone was given a similar um, <laughs> a similar privilege a couple of times after match-winning innings in the first dig. Uh, but that was the 145 that first came to mind. But also I had 145 in my head because uh, Shane Warne turned 51 the other day. I'm not sure if you saw the Instagram post of him having turned about 41 that he put up to go with that. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> A couple of days ago, I was looking at his um, post-drugs ban numbers. And I thought you would like this, Jeff, because... Post-drugs ban, he played 38 test matches and took a remarkable 217 test wickets. So 14 fifers and, and four 10-wicket matches. So he went from, I think he was on about 490-odd and, and really moted through to 707 where his career uh, finished. But I like the symmetry there because Clary Grimmett, another leg spinner, picked up 216 test wickets in his 37. So almost identical for the back of Warren's career and, mm. and the entirety of Grimmett's, which I suppose is a, a good benchmark uh, helping to explain just how Warren really did dominate at the final stretch there. He raced to the line. He didn't limp there. I mean, um, what he did uh, in Sri Lanka and England and at home over those couple of summers, even at the end of the, um, the wickets he took in the, in the Ashes series of 06 07, he, he wasn't sort of going out because his form had dropped or anything like that. He was retiring really on his own terms at the peak of his powers. It also shows that Clary Grimmett was better. That's what it shows. <laughs> One less well, test, well, one less wicket. Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to say. I mean, on, on on the basis that we know that Grimmett was incredibly consistent, all he would have needed to have done is taken two. But he didn't. He didn't play thirty eight. He, he played thirty seven. And why did he play thirty seven? Frank, Frank Ward. Ward. Frank bloody Ward. If you want to know more about Frank Ward, story time, which is where you get to hear a lot a lot more of uh, our nerd pledge numbers and stories, is on every weekend in the feed. And there's a third one four five, third Victorian one four five, which means a lot to me. It was that night in Colombo in in the in August of 2016 mm. where Glenn Maxwell made 145 not out in 65 balls oh, opening the innings uh, against Sri Lanka which I mean, it feels like a long time ago right so it's more than four years ago he couldn't have opened the batting for Australia more than uh, maybe two or three more times in that stretch it feels like especially in 20 over cricket 
they've, they've missed a trick there because when he was given that chance, the first time he opened for Australia in 20 over cricket, he hits 145 not out in 65 balls. The second time, so that the second game of that series, from memory, he makes another half century. 65, I think he was 65 not out, chasing a small target. Yeah, and I mean, I appreciate that with Warner and Finch uh, opening, it's hard to overlook that, that pair. But yes, get Maxie in in the power play. Anyway, one, four, five, three Victorians, Dean Jones, Shane Warne, (laughs) Glenn Maxwell. Thank you, Travis Clark, for letting me do all that. Uh, And our last number, because we we do a couple on the uh, midweek show and we have the real gallop on the weekend, comes in from Mick Flurry. I suspect that might be a pseudonym, but it's it's a nice, cold and delicious one. Thank you, Mick Flurry. (laughs) The number is $2.56. What... If we turned our cricketing minds to it, might two fifty six mean Adam? Well, we've just had s- some sort of positive stories. Uh, nerd pledge and uh, story time is all about light and shade, positive stuff and negative stuff. We don't try and um, we don't try and do too much of one or the other. So I thought after a bunch of really positive stories, we should talk about the nineteen sixty four Manchester Test match, which we've reflected on before with respect to Bob Simpson's three eleven of seven hundred and forty three balls <laughs> as Australia made their way to six hundred and fifty six for eight declared, having batted for two hundred and fifty five overs which to an extent you can understand because a draw um, would help Australia retain the ashes uh, that they defended in 1962-63 at home. So you can kind of get what they were trying to do with the bat. But I kind of enjoy the fact that even though England needed to win that test to stay in the series, they showed absolutely no intention of doing so when they got their chance to reply. Uh, they made 6-11 and the 2-5-6 is Kenny Barrington, 2-5-6 off 624 balls. So Simpson's strike rate was 42 across his 311. And Barrington's strike rate it w- was worse. <laughs> his strike rate was 41. So 256 off 683 balls. England bat for 293 overs for their 611, uh, which means that uh, the, the test match only entered into the, the third innings uh, for four runs. Australia only had to face two overs on the fifth afternoon before they shook hands and caught the whole thing off, which <laughs> meant that Australia did retain the ashes. But talking to Andy Zaltzman about this test match the other day, he, uh, coincidentally, as Andy and I do late at night, which probably says more about us than it does about uh, Mick Flurry, who sent this number through, it is the worst test match ever played as far as the dullest test match ever played and he's calculated this before and looked at it in, in greater detail but um, you look at the, the debut of Tom Cartwright 77 overs 32 maidens 2 for 118 <laughs> I mean uh, what, what an introduction to test cricket for the uh. for the England bowler and really it was emblematic of a, of a shithouse era uh, you know I mean the 50s is known for being a fairly drab uh, period of time in test cricket but at least they tended to get results in in the 60s it was equally slow but with far more draws and mm. and far more sort of conservative careful cricket and, and that's in I guess in some ways why um, Garfield Sober's career is all the more impressive given that <laughs> he was able to excel in the broader circumstances of global cricket at the time but anyway 1964 the Manchester Test Match Kenny Barrington 256 Mick Flurry if you were celebrating that with your number I tip my lid to you maybe you weren't and you'll tell us uh, via the patron DMs why I was wrong and, and how we can redraw this when we next gather for story time on the weekend. The real cherry on top of the shit Sunday of that test match is is that they only got into the third innings for two overs, fine. 
They still only scored four runs. Like, still no one went out there and just had a swing, you know, like just try to nail a couple. If it was one for 16 in the first two overs, I'd think, all right, well, at least they had some fun at the end. Uh, that is Nerd Pledge for this show. Thank you to Mick and Travis. Oh, I've just noticed David. something. I've just, I've just, I've right. just, before we go on, I've just noticed something. You know how I mentioned before that Dean Jones got to bowl the, the last over of that one day international in, in 1990? Mm. Looking at those two overs, who got to bowl the first over of the third innings for England after his two five six? Kenny Ken Barrington. Barrington. And they after still only took four off him. To Kenny. <laughs> was, was it amazing? Sorry, I or cut did, you off there, Jeff. Go did, again. Did he concede? No, he had four runs. runs. No, he had four runs taken, and it was a boundary from Bob Simpson, so he okay. ended up making 315 runs for that test match. Oh, God. But, you know, only hit one four. Jesus, Bob. Get a wriggle on. Nerd Pledge, if you want to play go to patron.com slash the final word. You can make an account, sign up and uh, send us in your pledge and help us keep the show going and we will love you very much indeed. Uh, that's Nerd Pledge. Jeff, before we wrap up, uh, I mentioned uh, we would talk about the one-day internationals that have been played so far here at Manchester. Did you wake up and get, or maybe you were up, Maybe it wasn't a case of waking up rather than staying up through the mm. night. Anyway, uh, to watch Australia lose 7 for 32 after being in cruise control in that second one day, did, did you witness that or did you wake up to the news? I did exactly what you might expect in the circumstances, which is watch some of it and then think, oh, well, this is petering out, um, and went to bed. So it was, it was quite... Um, it, it was interesting. The thing that... To, twigged it to me was waking up in the morning and seeing something about the decider in the third game. I thought, hang on a minute, decider? <laughs> yes, England, England have got level. They haven't lost a one-day series at home since 2015 um, and they looked all but set mm. to do it, which, which seemed very significant given how badly Australia got smashed there in the one-dayers a couple of years ago. You know, To come back and win the first two would have been a huge deal, but it hasn't happened. They've, they've had another of those collapses like they had in the T20 recently. And, and now it's one all. So it's going to make the third one pretty tasty indeed. Yeah, so they lose seven for 32. It was four for three at one point. Lawrence Booth, it was, I think, on Twitter, had that Australia, at this, just before the collapse, were two for 144 in the 31st over. England earlier in the day were eight for 149 in the 41st over. And in the end, England won comfortably by, mm. I think it was 15 runs or something like that, uh, 25 runs even, after I mean, Adil Rashid and Tom Curran got a hold of the Australian uh, bowlers. And it, I guess that the contrast between the lower order of England, where they genuinely do bat down to number 10, occasionally number 11 even, but y you compare that, well, even well, Archer batting number 11, I think it's fair to say they do bat to number 11. He um, contributed to that final flourish where they whacked 44 runs in three overs at the end. But yeah, Labashane and Finch were doing it easy. Now, after play, Pat Cummins... Uh, spoke to us and explained that in the dressing room they knew that if they lost one wicket it was going to be very hard to get in on on a used pitch under lights that was slow and the ball was getting softer and that all makes sense but it took uh, someone to light the spark and how often is it Chris Wokes? I mean he's just such a reliable uh, dependable bowler for England no matter what the format no matter where in the world and, and so on but he gets one past Marnus's inside edge gets him leg before cleans up Maxwell with a straight one playing down the wrong line cleans up Finch as well in that in that flourish uh, down the other end Joffre Archer gets brought back at the perfect time he knocks over Mitchell Marsh who was the steady hand on the tiller in that chase on Tuesday, the previous Tuesday in the in the third T20 International. So suddenly, four for three, the whole game is opened up. They bring back Sam Curran and even at that point, six down, yes, it's a runner ball to win from there, but 
with Alex Carey and Pat Cummins, you're thinking, well, you know, it's not Sam Curran has to bowl six overs off the reel to finish off in order to they they held him back because of the way that they brought Archer in to bowl those middle overs because they saw there was a chance to go for the kill. And you're thinking, well, you know, they're not out of this by any stretch, but lo and behold, Curran takes a wicket with his second and third balls. He was on a hat trick. Mm. Um, of course, he didn't get a hat trick, so I was calling at the time. And that was that, really. I mean, Zampa and then Hazelwood uh, hung around with Carey for a while, but he had too much work to do. He was the not out man at the end, and they fell short by quite a margin. But yeah, considering they had that, that collapse in Southampton to start the T20s, to follow that up with a, a one day international collapse of similar magnitude, uh, it will look, it's been an eventful series, put it that way. We, it hasn't been a sort of. The, the games aren't over until they're over. You know what I mean? We don't see a lot of very interesting captaincy in 50 over cricket. You know, it's a pretty pro forma sort of game. It's a pretty conservative sort of game to be a fielding captain for. I, I guess by its nature, it's about, you know, let's try not to concede too many. And it was it was one of the things that was uh, so joyous about watching Brendan McCullum play was not just the way that he batted around that 2015 era especially, uh, but the way that he captain in the field you know he'd often have three slips for his opening bowlers he'd sometimes bowl Trent Bolt 10 overs on the spin if he was bowling well and, and taking wickets you know he'd he'd be willing to to change on the go and and that's something that we saw from Morgan in that game where you know basically when he decided that the game was gone unless he got wickets he brought back Wokes and Archer in the middle and kept them on kept them bowling through didn't do the conservative thing and try to leave them for the end and you know I did go back and look at that Wokes spell and to pick up, you know, to get three wickets caught on the fence is one thing, but to get three bold and LBW when batsmen are playing cautiously against you, you know, that's something else. That's a a different standard. And and that's what he did to completely break that game open. And, uh, And the other thing was just how rapidly Archer was bowling, you know, really going for it when he didn't have to conserve his energy like he's had to do in a test match where you know he has been criticized for not bowling 96 miles an hour all the time as though that's physically possible yeah archer had that put to him he was mad of the match archer i suppose because he he picked up warner for the is it the seventh time in international cricket he's already um, of course that includes um, the t20s uh, last week and and the uh, and the test matches they played against each other last year but three in the ashes yeah three in the ashes and, and that ball that he bowled for him i, I saw it described in, in some places as a, as a loose delivery it wasn't at all it was a a searing delivery that really took off but nonetheless Warner did play with hard hands and he was caught behind and then that ball to Stoinis was a snorter so when Archer bowls those sorts of deliveries they just get wickets I mean how do you get out the way of that so he opened Australia up before the big partnership uh, that wasn't big enough really but Finch and Labuschagne put on 107 and they you know Labuschagne's turning into a really good middle overs player and they need him at the moment in the absence of Stephen Smith which in itself is a pretty interesting story really he's passed two concussion tests one before each game but on each occasion they've elected not to play him so he was hit on the head on Thursday had the test they made the decision late to leave him out I mean I saw him walking out to the middle uh, before the first one day international which gave the distinct impression he was going to play so they've obviously made a late call there and and um, and and elected to be conservative and they did exactly the same thing before the second game so uh, look ordinarily Smith's one of the first names on, on the team sheet no matter what the format of the game but Labuschagne did step in admirably on on that in that chase on on Sunday before getting out but yeah this the, the Smith story is complicated by the fact that ordinarily we'd be at training it's part of the job mm. I mean it's not always exciting 
you go to training, you do the yards in case there is something like that. But the nature of our COVID secure um, situation uh, means that we can't watch training. So we didn't know about the Smith situation until the toss when Aaron Finch announced that Smith wouldn't be in the 11. So it was a bit odd. I, I get that it, it's tough to manage yep. that flow of information, but it was, it was unorthodox that we didn't actually know about it until the last minute. I suppose that might be on account of the fact that he did make the decision not to play quite late on. But uh, Justin Langer spoke this morning, Jeff, and he's pretty clear that they would have played kids in the third game. I thought this was interesting and quite revealing from Langer. They were looking at playing the, the, the squad members, so I suppose Sam's, Meredith and Philippi, uh, had they won the second game and had it been a dead rubber, even though they'd be playing for World Cup Super League points, they were going to give them an opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. Instead, they'll have to play their best 11 because the series is on the line and thus you'd expect Smith will come in for Stoinis. Yeah, he, well, he's that's been the word anyways, that, that he will come in and, and play. The other interesting part across both the games is that Australia's bowlers have held England's batting comprehensively. Mm-hmm. You know, this is England, the... The steamrolling team, you know, the the big scoring team, most of those players are still there who created that reputation over the last four years. It's not like they won the World Cup and then everybody retired. So Mm. it's been really interesting to see that they've been held to some uh, pretty modest scores in the first couple of games. And courtesy of Josh Hazelwood, who we've seldom seen in one-day cricket for two years before the start of 2020. He's got to go to India, surely. Well, I think he will go to India. for, the, for He'll go to India for the IPL. He'll go to India for the World T20 uh, next year. Then ultimately, I'm sure he'll be in India for the World Cup in, in 2023 because it, how can you leave him out? He's just so consistent. The maidens that he bowled off the top on Friday and then repeating the dose on Sunday, it's, I mean, and we, you know, we, we have seen in even in the Big Bash that small sample size in January where they where they brought him back. That's where the that's where the train started. That's where the got to go to India yeah, train began. That's right. That's where that's where. Yeah, I mean, I was going to sort of say something flippant about for whatever reason, despite having not having all these tricks, he does have a trick, a fucking good trick. He hits the seam over and over again in exactly the same spot, and he's six foot five. I mean. That's his trick and does mm. it at about 145 kilometres an hour, sometimes up into the 150s even. So Hazelwood is a threat. And I think that somewhere along the line, we, we convinced ourselves that um, due to the way in which he bowls consistently, and that that was a, 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 wasn't a virtue anymore, that somehow it stopped being a, a productive part of his white ball game and it made him too predictable or, or something like that. But I'm glad that we've gone the other way on that now and there's still room for a bowler like him uh, in international cricket, especially of the 50-over variety. And Adam Zampa as well, who on both occasions was uh, the main man ripping through the middle order, those sort of incredibly hard-hitting batsmen like Josh Butler and Owen Morgan. He picked them both up in the first game. I think he got Morgan in the second game, Joe Root in the second game. Seven wickets across two one-dayers, having taken three in his previous five against England in this form of cricket, which... I guess contributed to him being dropped from the World Cup team last year after after four games. They they, they sensed that he didn't go too well in England. Well, he's bounced back fairly comprehensively across these two games. So fair play to Adam Zampa for finding his place and for Josh Hazelwood for really taking the absolute opportunity with two hands here. Well, around about the time that people will be able to listen to this podcast on Wednesday, it'll be maybe a couple of hours before that game gets going. So if you are listening in time, uh, see if you can find a way on the internet to tune in. Adam will be calling on the BBC and uh, it'll be televised in the usual places. We'll discuss the third and final next week.
We will indeed. Jeff, let's wrap it up there. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Daniel Bredig for being on the show and, again, being such a great source of information when it comes to anything off-field, uh, whether it's Cricket Australia or, or global governance. So he is the go-to guy. So read what Dan has to write at ESPN Crick Info. Thank you, of course, to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Make sure you pick up their magazine or pick up a subscription, better still. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Get your discount for being a Final Word listener. Thanks to Bad Producer Productions for putting our show out twice a week to Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards and to Dave Collins who edits us so magnificently. Thanks to everybody who reviews and rates what we do on iTunes and so on. It helps make sure that people hear what we do and keeps us sort of up towards the top of the charts and all those sorts of things which are nice and flattering. Uh, And thanks as always to you, Jeff Lemon, uh, sitting in that hotel in Queensland. It's going to be a strange couple of weeks, but I'm glad that we'll be able to do uh, lots of uh, work on the final word, including story time this week, which... I'm not sure who we are going to reboot yet. We will work it out. We'll have a conversation. But there'll be an interview from Final Word uh, Seasons Past and there'll be another gallop down Cricket's memory lane. Thank you to Queensland for having me. The greatest state in Australia, clearly. Queensland, it's got to be. If anybody from Queensland has the secrets of how to fit into Queensland, please get in touch and let us know. Let me know what I need to do to be part of the club. (laughs) Uh, we'll be back with you on the weekend, I suppose. It's the final one. Bye. I had to go about it.